sending you data. Hello, everybody over in Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Crazy day. Trying to figure out everything going on here, technical. Yeah, it just, it it's not working. YouTube is just not working. It just keeps sending data and sending data. So apparently I'm just not going to go live on, on YouTube today. Oy they. Exactly. It wouldn't be my show without that, right? Definitely. Oh, so today on today's show, of course, is Tuesday's True Crime. Today we are discussing true crime. Um, well, duh. I just said that. We're going <laughs> to be talking about the spy in the bag, the mysterious death of Gareth Williams. Then we're going to talk about the deaths of Chris Crummers and Lisa Ann Prune, who they went on a hike in Panama and never returned. After that, we'll be discussing the Tom and Chud case. This case has, hey, Heather, how you doing? Welcome. Um, this case has, has stumped me for a while now uh, since the first time I heard it. And last but not least, we are going to be talking about Cindy James, a woman is found murdered after reporting more than 100 incidences of harassment and violence, but police think she stayed the, staged the attack herself. So we'll discuss this in more. Oh, no, Zach. Oh, no. I'm doing good, Heather. Thanks for asking. Now let me go ahead and get my screen up. See, it's been a while since I've used this screen, since Eddie's not here today. There we go. So I had to find it. (laughs) Hope all is well with everybody. Again, I am so sorry. I'm having some technical difficulties for some reason. Um, YouTube does not want to stream today. They're just, it's just like, nope, I'm sending data and that's about it. So, unfortunately, there's no YouTube in today. <laughs> so, I hope everybody gets the tweet. The only one that's not going to get the tweet, let me go ahead and send a Facebook message out. Just because I know Freaky Geek is probably not going to know what's going on. He's going to be like, what the hell? Where is she? It, it does suck, Sid. It really does. It's like, come on. Um, YouTube <laughs> is not streaming. Oh, Sorry, guys. I feel so bad about this. Over to Facebook, or I'm not going to put everything in there. I'm not going to put everything I stream to <laughs> in there. Oh, goodness. Lord, it be. I, yeah, that's what most people do, Sid, is they like to watch it on their phone and their TV, you know, type on their phone and down because that'll screw up my computer. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people do that. And for some reason, it just keeps – it's not even loading over in or, uh, 
in uh, YouTube. It's just sending data. That's all it's doing. Just sending the data. Who knows? Oh. All right, Zach. Take care, hon. Thank you so much for stopping in. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Like I said, I worry. I worry when I don't see my regulars. <laughs> Definitely worry. So, yeah. Let me go ahead and before, well, since I'm started, let me go ahead and um, now I'm flashing you guys. Let me get my magnet on. Eddie's going to do his magnet part after work. He's working today, so I don't have my lovely co-host with me. And if you're new to my channel, I'm sorry that I look so ridiculous with a magnet on my forehead, but it's an experiment we're doing. We read a couple uh, weeks ago, we had a... uh, story come up about using a magnet to try to open up your pineal gland and so we're testing it and see it works so it's 30 minutes for 30 days and today is day nine believe it or not today is day nine hey i watch day nine he's a good streamer but anyway i hope all is well with you again i apologize to all my youtubian friends over there if you guys had to come in here to be live and everything because of the fact that I don't know what's going on with YouTube. They're going nuts. They're going nuts. That's what's going on. Fam love. That's right, Zach. Thank you so much for coming in, hon. Be safe, my friend. Be safe. So, yeah, we're doing an experiment. And uh, like I said, Eddie will be doing his. God, it does sit right on my freaking uh Sinuses. I think that's what's bugging. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so if you're new here, this is why I got the magnet on my face. <laughs> so today, like I said, if I start flashing you, sorry, guys. Who the hell knows what's going on with today? <laughs> um, we are talking about true crime and mysteries. So the first story I have for today is The Spy in the Bag, The Mysterious Death of Garris Williams. And this gets a little bit weird, but um, on August 23rd, 2010, police found a body of a naked man in a bathtub in his flat in London zipped inside a red North Face bag, which was padlocked shut from the outside. But the weird thing about it is the key to the padlock in the bag beneath the man's body. This would all be strange enough, but to complicate the mystery, the man in question was Gareth Williams, a Welsh mathematician who was working with the British Secret Intelligence Service, also known as MI6. In other words, he was a spy. And this is what he looked like. Maybe. That is what he looked like. That is the famous Mr. Gareth Williams. So he was found in the bathtub in a red North Face, North Face bag, zipped up, padlocked, with the key underneath his body. What's up with that? You know, that's crazy shit right there. 
crazy, crazy stuff. So they did the investigation, of course. He's from Wales. Gareth Williams was a true whiz kid getting a first-class math degree from Bangor University when he was only 17. He substantially got his Ph.D. from the University of Manchester and went to work for the government communications headquarters, who turned, uh, sec- who in turn seconded him out to MI6. Due to the top-secret nature of his work for the Secret Intelligence Service, the investigation of his death had to be handled in less than a routine manner. Um, because the details of the case could not immediately be revealed to the public or even to all the police who were involved in the investigation, there were those who still believed that key elements of his death were covered up, falsified, or intentionally lost. Some sort of the conspiracy world certainly explained many of the bizarre uh, elements surrounding William's death, including the strange arrangement of his body. And in fact, no fingerprints or DNA were found on the bathtub or the bag, and that no drugs or what the hell just happened? <laughs> wow. Spirits are active today. They're just moving my uh, story all around here. Um, where was I now? Jeez. Uh, everything's going nuts today. So no fingerprints or DNA were found in the bathtub or the bag, and that no drugs or poisons were found in the toxicology reports. Indeed, in 2012, a coroner's inquest determined that it would have been also almost impossible for Williams to have locked himself in the bag in question and concluded that his death was unnatural and likely to have been criminally meditated, you think? Unfortunately, there wasn't enough evidence for his inquest to render any more definitive verdict. So this poor guy was locked in a North Face bag, right? I mean, and I'm, I don't know what a North Face bag, I'm, I'm sure it's like a duffel bag or whatnot. And the padlock is locked, but the keys are in the inside underneath him. How does that happen? While accidentally locking yourself in a bag seems like an absurd conclusion at a glance, there are certain reasons for police to have their suspicions. Three years before his death, Garris Williams had been found by his landlady and her husband tied to his bed and screaming for help. He told them that he had tied himself to the bed in order to see if he could get loose. Was that the truth, or was there more something more sinister going on? Yeah, it's crazy, Heather, right? Um, so perhaps someone else had tied Williams up, someone whose identity he wasn't free to divulge to his landlady, or perhaps he really had been practicing his escape artist skills. I don't know if <laughs> that's just crazy. Um, I mean, we've all seen it on TV, and I'm sure we've laughed about it. I know I have. I mean, how can you not laugh at Chandler on Friends getting, you know, handcuffed to the filing cabinet? I mean, stuff happens like that. (laughs) Um, But another possibility was brought up during the inquest that Williams was interested in bondage. Apparently, he had spent some time on bondage websites. 
though the coroner did determine that the visits were intermittent and not frequent enough to suggest an active interest in that lifestyle. Tying himself to the bed incident, there was enough for someone to write off William's death as a sex game gone wrong. The strange case hasn't remained quiet in the years since William's death. In 2015, Boris Karpat, it's a Russian name, um, so we're going to just say Boris, <laughs> a former KGB agent who defected from Russia, claimed that Williams had been murdered by members of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Services by means of an untraceable poison induced into his ear. Hey, Nick, how are you? Good morning. According to this Boris, the reason for Williams' murder was a failed attempt to recruit the Welsh mathematician to become a double agent. In the course of the attempt, Boris, the Russians discovered that Williams knew the identity of the Russian mole within the British government communications headquarters and killed him in order to keep him from talking. The counter narrative sounds like something out of a spy novel with a double agent um, going by the code name Orion. While Boris calls the Russian assassins who did Williams in the cleaners and claims they used belladonna, aconite, and black henbane, according to some sources. Boris isn't the only one who suspects Russia might have been behind Williams' death. According to a lengthy investigation, by BuzzFeed News, several United States intelligence officers had confirmed that Gareth Williams is one of the 14 or more people who may have been killed by the Russian assassins on British soil. Hey, Ron. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. So, after former Russian uh, agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with a Novichok nerve agent in Salisbury in March of 2018. Colin Sutton, a former Metropolitan Police detective and the senior officer on the scene of Williams' death, has called for a fresh look into the strange case. In the light of recent Russian activity in the UK, whether yet another investigation of the spy in the bag will shed any new light on the mysterious death of Gareth Williams remains to be seen, but it seems impossible to deny that there are still more questions than answers in this haunting case. That is crazy. I mean, really. Can you imagine being the cop that found, like, I, I don't even know where to begin with that. I mean, the dude was in a bag, a duffel. I, I'm thinking it's a duffel bag, right? I mean, I'm sure they have a lot of different uh, bags. Yeah, it looks like a double, duffel bag. Um, this is what I'm pulling up anyway. Let me go ahead and share this, share this with you guys. Wrong one. So that type of duffel bag. The dude was inside that duffel bag padlocked and the keys were found underneath him. Well, it said a key was found underneath him. So, I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. So do you guys think he was murdered because he was, he didn't want to be a double agent? 
I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. They do do that to people. It's not like, you know, <laughs> it's not like they go, okay, no problem. You don't have to be a double agent. Bye. Mm-hmm. That really is crazy. Really is crazy. It is. It is. It's. I, I can't imagine... But why stuff them in a duffel bag? That's what gets me. No, they didn't. They thought at first it was poison. Hey, Joanne. Did I miss somebody? Like, I totally... The YouTube's screwing me all up here. <laughs> I'm sorry if I missed you. Come in, Joanne. I can't believe but believe it was... Oh, yeah, I definitely believe it was murder, but... It was just crazy. Yeah, Nick, definitely. I'm always up for stories, always. So, um, yeah, if you're, uh, all my info is down in, if you want to send it to Twitter, Facebook, I, I would rather you send it to Shadows of the Moon One at yahoo.com. Um, but whatever you feel comfortable sending it to, definitely. We do this every week. So, every Tuesday is True Crime Tuesday. Um, but yeah, I mean, crazy. Can you imagine, but how, why would they stuff them in a duffel bag though? I mean, I know that's not uncommon, but I can't imagine, well, first of all, I can't imagine murdering anybody, but (laughs) stuffing them in a duffel bag. Oh, I'm flashing you guys. Woohoo. Come on, stop. I just want to see if YouTube is up and running at. Has anybody checked you? Sorry for the flashing. I'm having a bunch of technical difficulties here today. YouTube didn't want to stream. I'm flashing, you guys. I'm telling you, it's it's my Monday. If you're new here and wondering why I have a magnet on my forehead, it's an experiment that me and my husband are doing. And uh, obviously, he's not here. <laughs> he's working today, but he will be doing, um, that's right, that's right, Ron, I'm flashing you, <laughs> I don't even remember what time, I, I think I put it on 10, 11, when I put the magnet on, okay, oh, wow, okay, Nick, definitely, we'll, we'll definitely read about it, and then see if at least we can get a few new eyes on it, and see if, you know, anything can come up. So, yeah, I know. I, I, I don't even know what time I put this on, but, you know, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's one of those days. You're very welcome, Nick. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, the next story we have is, as you can tell, this is probably going to be, a, I mean, well, the Somerton man, that's a longer story, but this is most likely... Um, going to be a short stream today with Eddie not here. You're telling Mr. Chaos? Why are you telling Eddie? Why? Why? Don't tell him that stuff. This Well, I can't say we can talk about him now because he's not here. He's actually, thank you for the diamond, Ron. You got me that time. You made me jump. Peekaboo. <laughs> Ron just likes to see me dance. <laughs> 
No, people donate to see me jump. That's what it is. <laughs> um, no, I was thinking we could talk about Mr. Chaos here, but I that would be a bad idea because he goes back and listens to the the broadcast. So never mind on that. <laughs> So the next story that I have is the unexplained disappearance of Chris Crummers and Lisa Ann Vroom. Now, this happened back in 2014. They went, um, they left their host family's home to take a family dog on a walk through the Panama, Panamanian jungle. It would be the last time anyone would see them. Now go, let me, I'm probably going to flash you. I don't know. It depends on what my computer feels like doing. This is them. This is Lisa. And this is Chris. And, of course, this is called um, coming from allthatsinteresting.com. All the links are down in the description. So if you would like to, um, well, I guess they aren't on DLive. I don't know how that works. <laughs> but um, all the descriptions are everywhere else except YouTube because that's just not working. <laughs> um, so anyway, getting back to this, on April 1st, 2014, Chris Lemmers and uh, Chris Kremers and Lisa Ann Prune left their host family's home to take the family dog on a walk through the scenic forest around the Barrio Volcano in Panama. Chris Kremers and Prunes were students from Antsport in the Netherlands, and they had spent six months planning their trip to Panama, which is supposed to serve as a part vacation, part service trip. They planned on spending some time hiking and touring, also volunteering with local children, teaching arts and crafts, and learning Spanish. The two women had been hiking around the Panamanian jungle for the past two weeks as part of a backpacking mission trip and intended to stay for the next four weeks with their host family to volunteer at a local school. No, Joanne, I didn't. Oh, hey, oh, Ron. I was like, wait a minute, what? I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> it's a confusing day, sorry. My bad. <laughs> How are you, Joanne? I hope all is well. So, um, so anyway, they're spending four weeks with their host family to volunteer at a local school. However, after they waved goodbye to their family at 11 a.m. on April 1st, they were never seen again. The woman had written a Facebook post in which they wrote about their intentions to tour the local village. They also wrote that they had had brunch with two fellow Dutchmen before embarking on their hike. This is one of the last photos taken of them and this it was they actually found one of their phones and this is was on that phone on the night of april 1st the whole family noticed something was wrong their dog had returned safe and sound but alone the girls were nowhere to be found the host family searched the area around their home but decided to wait until morning to alert the authorities on April 2nd, Kremers and Froome missed an appointment with a local tour guide who was supposed to take them on a private walking tour of Boquet, 
these names, you guys know how I'm great with enunciations. <laughs> Apparently, I can't even say enunciation. Um, but which prom- prompted the host fam to, family to alert authorities. The next morning, an aerial search of the forest was conducted, as well as a foot search of the village and lightly wooded areas by local, the locals. By April 6th, the two women were still missing. Fearing the worst, the Kremers and Froome families flew to Panama, bringing with them detectives from the Netherlands. Along with local police and dog units, the search for the, they searched the forest for 10 days. Then, as the police were slowing their search efforts, a local woman turned in a blue backpack, claiming to have found it in a rice paddy along the banks of the river. Inside the backpack were two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in cash, Prune's passport, a water bottle, and two bras. We'll go ahead and show that. The backpack recovered on a rice paddy along the banks of the river in Bouquet. Hopefully I'm saying that right, and I apologize if I'm not. Also inside, mostly importantly, was Prune's camera and both women's cell phones. Police immediately investigated the camera and phones and came up with disturbing evidence. The phones had remained in service for almost 10 days after the woman disappeared. Over just four days, 77 separate attempts had been made to call the police, both via 112 the emergency number in the Netherlands, and 911, the emergency number in Panama. Using the call logs, police were able to come up with an outline of the time the girls spent missing in the forest. First two emergency calls had been just two hours after Crummers and Froon began their hike to the uh, 112 emergency number. So just two hours after they left, they started to begin to call the emergency numbers. Due to the dense jungle, neither of the attempts went through. In fact, out of all 77 calls, only one managed to make contact, but broke up just after two seconds. They got another picture. Was They were taking pictures, but they don't. They got recovered this from Froome's camera. I don't. I wonder if I don't know what they should be taking a picture of. I don't know. Police also discovered that on April sixth, several unsuccessful attempts were made to unlock Crummer's phones with an incorrect PIN. It was never received. It never received the correct number again. By April eleventh, both phones were dead. Hey Nicole, how are you? Welcome, welcome. Hope you're well. Through the call log was disturbing. It was nothing compared to the camera. The first photo on the camera was taken the morning of the April 1st when the women had left for their hike. The photo shows them on the trail near the Continental Divide, though nothing about them led police to become suspicious. However, the second set of photos were worrisome. Taken in the dead of night between the hours of 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. on April 8th, the photo showed the girls' belongings spread out on rock plastic bags, and candy wrappers oddly piled mounds of dirt, a mirror, and most worrisome, the back of Kremer's head with blood leaking from her temple. That could be, Heather, definitely. They could have tried to 
you know, they heard something and tried to get a picture just to see. I've done that, you know. I can't see out in the dark, so take a picture and see what I see, definitely. After investigating the area where the backpack had been found, police uncovered Kremer's clothing, neatly folded along the edge of the river. Two months later, in the same area, a pelvic bone and a foot, still inside the boot, were found. Soon after that, the bones of the woman were discovered. Lisa Froon's bones looked they had been decomposed naturally, as there was still bits of flesh attached to them. Kremer's bones were stark white and looked like they had been bleached. Okay, Nick, thank you. I will definitely take a look. Um, please question the locals, the tour guides, and other hikers who had been in the area at the time, but nothing beside the photos and call logs provide them with any evidence as to what had happened. There wasn't even enough evidence to determine the cause of death. To this day, the disappearance and death of Chris Kremers and Lisa Ann Froon remain a harrowing mystery. Pretty crazy, huh? I mean, crazy that the ones bones were found bleached, they looked bleached. I mean, that, I mean, I don't know how long it takes the sun to bleach bones, but I don't, I think it's a while, to be honest with you. I mean, I could be talking out my ass. I don't know. Um, but I really believe that, that it takes a while for bones to be bleached naturally in the sun. Um, very mysterious. Very mysterious. It's crazy. All right, guys, I think I can take my um, magnet out now. Like I said, if you're new, don't mind me. This is We're just doing an experiment. <laughs> um, no new things to report. I mean, Eddie's, like he said yesterday, he's experiencing more headaches with it. Um, I really haven't, except that it sits right on my sinus, um, I really haven't experienced anything abnormal since we started, except, like I said before, the shadow people that we normally see zooming across everywhere has really, like, dulled down. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, I, we don't see as many shadow people. Um, I think Eddie is opening up more. Whether it's caused by the magnet or not, I don't know. Um, but he's, like, opening up more to, like, he heard, if you guys were here yesterday, I believe he was talking about how he heard his totem animal, and it scared the hell out of him. But I said, again, I think that has to do with um, my new Scully that I got. Did I guys, I know I showed on Emmy's stream last night my new Scullies. Did I show you guys my new Scullies? I can't remember. But anyway, I got new Scullies, and one of them is the Eukonite, and that helps um, bring your totem animal um, closer to you, or at least, you know, helps you get in tune with your totem animal. Um, so I think that's what's happening. I'm thinking that Eukonite one, uh, it brought out Eddie's totem 
Yeah, I thought I, I know I did on any stream. But on here, I don't know if my regulars had seen them. Just in case you haven't. Um, this is my one of my newest scullies. That's the Eukonite one. I know you guys have seen all my other ones. And then I got a new Goldstone one. As I hit the mic, sorry guys. And then I got two itty bitty ones. My animal, I uh, my totem is the uh, raven. Eddie's is a snake. It's actually I can see Eddie's. That's the blue goldstone. It's little tiny ones, smaller than my other ones. As you know, my other ones are tiny as well. But these one, these little guys are smaller. And then my solidite. But little little tiny ones. Um, Eddie's is. I can see Eddie's in my mind's eye. Like, I know when it's around. Uh, but, yeah, my totem is the raven. And uh, Eddie's is a snake. It's actually a albino snake. I can see it's yellow and white. It's beautiful. So, it was a pretty crazy night. It was a pretty crazy night. But other than that, nothing's really happened. I, I'm not seeing as many shadow people around since I've been wearing the magnet, which is weird. Um, it came to me in a dream, Heather. It came to me in a dream. I've had a couple of them. Now, see, I'm the type of person when it comes to totem animals, I call upon what I need at that time. Kind of like people um, in Wiccan or Wicca um, or the pagan religion, they'll call about on different gods and goddesses. I call upon different um, totems when I need help in whatever I'm doing or if I just need that strength. So I, I'm kind of versatile when it comes to that, if that makes sense at all. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but I think that you can, I, uh, Scully helped develop Eddie in opening up to see his totem. It was funny. Like, Eddie, for who, those who don't know Eddie, who's new here, he's usually my co-host. He's my husband. Um, do you animal instincts? Because of all my life, I have felt like I'm part wolf and actually have heightened senses like a wolf. Definitely. That's not uncommon, Nick. That's not uncommon. A lot of people take characteristics of their totems, definitely. That's why you're so in tune with them and so, like, bonded with them. So that's, yeah, that's definitely, you know, not unheard of, definitely. Um, what was I saying? Oh, Eddie's usually here. He's my co-host. He's my husband. And um, he's a former Marine, so he usually doesn't get, you know, scared that easily. Um, but the other night when he uh, did his totem, <laughs> or not did his totem, but did, did, he um, spotted his totem. Well, first he heard it. He heard the hiss, and it made him back up. Like, I've never seen him back up as quick as he backed up. And he's like, did you hear that? And I didn't hear the hiss, but he heard it. And then I saw in my mind's eye, the snake um, 
coiled up under our TV in our TV stand. So it was it was a pretty wild experience. So back to the stories. The the next story we have is about Cindy James. Um, she's a woman that was found murdered after reporting more than a hundred disturbing incidences of harassment and violence, but the police think she staged the attacks herself. So I'm going to read this story and you guys decide, do you think that she did this herself or, I mean, obviously the ending, I don't know. I don't know. So on June, because there are people that do that, you know what I mean? But I think this is a little extreme when there's a hundred cases. Um, on June 8, 1989, the quiet Vancouver, British Columbia suburb of Richmond was shocked when a body was found lying in the yard of an abandoned house. The victim was a 44-year-old 44, 44 nurse named Cindy James. Coffee. I need coffee. I'm a little dry. <laughs> she had been drugged and strangled. Her hands and feet had been tied behind her back. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police believe that Cindy's death was either an accident or a suicide. Really? In the seven years before she died, Cindy reported nearly 100 incidences of harassment. Five were violent physical attacks. Over the time, the police began to doubt her story. But Cindy's parents never doubted that their daughter was murdered. Cindy's father, Otto Hack, says the police did not investigate the possibility of a homicide or something, somebody murdering her, but zeroed in on trying to prove that she committed suicide. Now her hands and feet were tied behind her back. So it all began with a mysterious phone call four months after Cindy James separated from her husband. Tilly Hack, Cindy's mother, said Cindy told her that she didn't recognize the voice. She said it was just a voice. Sometimes it would change the sound, and sometimes it was just like whispering. Something, if it was nothing, just silence. We'll see if the, it says, Nick. We'll see. Otto Hack, uh, Cindy's father, felt her daughter wasn't telling them everything she knew. Of course, I think that she should add a quality qualifier that she was very, very reluctant to talk about this right to the end. And our feeling was that she was withholding some something extremely vile or vital, not vile, vital. Cindy reported the threatening calls to Vancouver police who began investigating. And over the next three months, she had the harassment, the harassment got worse. At night, she heard prowlers. Her porch lights were smashed and phone lines severed and according to Cindy's friend Agnes Woodcock Cindy said bizarre notes began to appear on her doorstep she told me many times that he wanted to scare her to death she said he doesn't want to kill me he wants to scare me to death one night Agnes dropped by Cindy's house for a visit I went up and knocked on the door and there was no answer I assumed she was having her bath she did every night, and I thought I heard something, but I wasn't sure what it was. When Agnes investigated, she came across Cindy outside. I found her crouched down with a nylon tied around her neck. Cindy said she'd gone out to the garage to get a box, and someone grabbed her from behind. 
All she saw was white sneakers. Cindy moved to a new house, painted her car, and changed her last name. She also hired a private investigator, Ozzy Caban, and the police continued their investigation and questioned Cindy several times, according to Ozzy. She wouldn't tell them the entire story. She would be evasive. She would withhold information, and she simply would not act as a normal victim would act. And I can see where a police officer would have a tremendous amount of problem believing her story. So it's almost like she was scared, but not, um, I don't know, like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Cindy's mother thinks she knows the reason for her daughter's reluctance. Cindy told me that after she was attacked, the knife was held to her throat, and she was told if you talk, your sister will be next, and then your mother. So she just kept quiet and didn't tell anything. I can understand that. If my family members were threatened as well, I mean, what do you do? What do you do? Um, so one night, Ozzy heard strange noises coming over a two-way radio he had given Cindy. He went straight to her house. I went around the house, and the house was locked. I was able to look in the house through a window and found Cindy laying there. I, looked, I took a look at her and thought she was dead. I kicked in the door. There was a note that was pinned with a paring knife through her hand. I went to the telephone and called 911, and within two minutes, she, were, she would revive briefly, and then they took her to the hospital. She told me that she noticed a man coming through the gate. The next thing she remembered is being hit on the side of the head with a piece of wood or something of that nature. She then remembered being held down on the floor, and she remembered a needle going into her arm. But to some, the incidents and her stories of harassment seem suspicious. Neil Hall covered the story for the Vancouver Sun. There was never a fingerprint from a suspect. There was no independent corroboration. Cindy saw this person, and sometimes she said there were two, sometimes three people. One and a half million dollars, it's been estimated, the police spent investigating Cindy James' complaints. More than 100 incidences, and they could never find a suspect. Cindy said the threatening phone calls continued, but the police said they were too short to trace. Neil Hall said they had a 24-hour surveillance on her house for days on end with up to 14 officers, but never, when the surveillance was on her house, never any, any event would happen. As soon as surveillance was taken off, of course, then she'd get another incident that happened. Well, yeah, I mean, the guy, I'm sure the guy that was harassing her, guy or girl, I don't know, knew what was going on. Cindy's mother doesn't think that was odd. When the police were watching your house, we would say to them, well, you know, if somebody's doing that, they sure as heck he knows you're there. And, of course, nobody will do anything when you're sitting there and watching. And that's true. That's how I feel about it, anyway. <laughs> Then Cindy was found dazed and semi-conscious lying in a ditch six miles from her home. She was wearing a man's work boot and a glove and suffered from hypothermia. Cuts and bruises covered her body and a black nylon stocking had been tied around her neck. Cindy Cindy said she had no memory of what happened. Cindy started asking Agnes and her husband Tom 
to spend the night. On one occasion, Agnes said she woke them up. Cindy came running to the door and said, Tom, I heard a noise downstairs. And Tom said, I heard it too. It was like a loud thump. When they went downstairs, Agnes said they discovered that the basement was in flames. So I ran to the phone, and the phone was dead. So Tom went outside and got got the neighbor and asked if he would call the fire department. And then he went out. There was a man standing on the curb, and Tom asked him, and he ran away from the street. Hmm. Once again, the police suspected that Cindy staged the incident. Reporter Neil Hall said that Cindy's behavior that night was odd. There was no dust or fingerprints disturbed in the outside of the windowsill, but someone set the fire from inside the home, and they would have to climb through that window. Now, that should have been one sign. Also, she said she was walking her dog late at night that night. Now, if somebody was being attacked, why would they go out alone walking their dog 3 o'clock in the morning? Does that make sense? This is kind of crazy, right? Finally, Cindy's doctor uh, committed her to a local psychiatric ward. He believed she was becoming suicidal. Cindy's psychotherapist, Alan Conley, said, I think one of the best things she found most difficult was that people didn't believe her. She was always doubted. She knew she was doubted and that that was slowly driving her crazy, the fact that she wasn't believed. Ten weeks later, Cindy left the hospital. Cindy's father said that she finally admitted to her family and friends that she knew more than she was saying. She told me for the first time she was convinced who the perpetrator was, and in her own words, if the police can't solve this, I'll solve it for them. On May 25th, 1989, six years and seven months after the first threatening phone call, Cindy James disappeared. On the same day, her car was found in a neighborhood parking lot. Inside were groceries and a wrapped gift. There was blood on the driver's side door and items from Cindy's wallet were under the car. Two weeks later, her body was found in an abandoned house. It looked like Cindy James had been brutally murdered. Her hands and feet were bound together behind her back. A black nylon stocking was tied tightly around her neck. Yet an autopsy revealed that Cindy died from an overdose of morphine and other drugs. Police concluded that Cindy had committed suicide, but her father didn't believe it. There was no way that she could have been able, after investing that amount of drugs, to tie herself up. She was absolutely nothing, there was absolutely nothing at the crime scene to indicate that she had any form of syringe or had any drinking device or anything of that nature. Reporter Neil Hall says the morphine wouldn't have taken effect for, say, 15 minutes to a half an hour. The knot specialist who came in and recreated the same type of knot and the way she was tied up, it took him three minutes. In Vancouver, the coroner ruled that Cindy's death was not suicide, an accident, or murder. They determined that she died of unknown events. Cindy's family, however, believes that someone in Vancouver knows what happened and is getting away with murder. Hey, Tamara. Welcome, hon. How you doing? Thank you for at least stopping in. I appreciate it. 
I really do. So what do you guys think? Do you think it was a murder? Or do you think she did this all on her own? I mean, it is kind of crazy that if you're being stalked, you're getting going out at 3 a.m. by yourself walking your dog. I'm sorry, but that is kind of good to hear, Tamara. <laughs> yeah, Ron, stop mooning people. <laughs> you can't help it. He's a mooner. <laughs> So what do you guys think? I mean, I'll tell you, I'll, I will tell you firsthand, okay, that I've had a stalker. I've had a stalker try to break into my house. And the only thing that saved me, because my kids were in the house, was my foot wedged against the floor in the door. And every time he popped the lock, I pushed the door closed. Um, that messed with my mind. I was, I would not leave because in my bedroom, you could see down the, um, I lived in uh, apartment complexes and you could see down the driveway, right? For three days, I wouldn't leave that window because I was waiting for him to come back. So, I mean, it messes with your mind and I wouldn't be out walking a dog if that makes sense. Heather says, the part that I don't get, if you're having stuff like that happen, why would you be walking at 3 a.m.? Exactly. Alone. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I, I just, yeah. I wouldn't go out of my house until I know the cops kicked him out of New York. Um, Not to say that he didn't come back into New York, but, you know, it was it was very scary and very and I didn't go through anything near what she went through, so going out that that does strike me odd that she would out go out and walk her dog. I did well. I stalked Eddie, Mister Chaos. Yes, I did. I did stalk him, <laughs> but it was online stalking. <laughs> he was down in Florida. I was in New York. <laughs> But I did it. I did it the shy way because I'm a very shy person. I Facebook friended him and waited until he talked to me. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. It's okay. I mean, I I talk about no. I have no problem. This was years ago, so it doesn't bother me as much. But I mean, well, yeah, Ron. But are you stalked by anybody? I mean, that don't. Yeah, I, mean, I can see people walking their dog 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, they're up. But with having somebody attack you all the time like that, that's a little weird to me. At least to me. You know, I could be wrong. What the hell do I know? <laughs> I mean... Just it, It's just my thought. I mean, maybe it's different because I'm a woman, but I'm just like, if I was being attacked and had a stalker and I would not, um, I would not be walking my dog or anything at 3 a.m. in the morning alone. Now, if, if like I had a best friend, like if she sat there, if Cindy was like, hey, Agnes, will you come walk the dog with me? That'd be a different story. Do you know what I mean? Definitely a weird case. <laughs> right, Sid? <laughs> right now, 
You were a stalker, Ron? Hey, Tamara, you have a great day, hon. Thank you so much for popping in. I appreciate it. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just weird to me. I don't know. It's just me, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, thank you, Nick. It's 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 definitely a scary situation going through that. I'm not going to lie. I am not going to lie. It's it's a scary, stressful situation when you're stalked. Yes. And the thing with it is, is I was stalked. The guy like was friends with one of my friends, and it affected my best friend who lived across the hall as well. It it was a friend of both of ours. It was her friend first, <laughs> and um, he got my neighbor's phone number and my phone number from our mutual friend. And um, it was a crazy situation. Thank you so much for the ice cream. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. You scared me. You got me. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Thank you so much. Um, But, yeah, it was definitely uh, where he would call – our house and basically now mind you at that point in time I had my kids were little um my my oldest daughter was in kindergarten or first grade one of those two Ryan was real little little it was the same apartment that he tried killing me with pine saw in <laughs> but um yeah so he would this guy would call up and leave all these crude ass messages on my voicemail and he did it so fast that I would go into the voicemail, erase all the messages, not even listen to them, just erase them. And by the time I called the voicemail again, it'd be filled up again. So we yeah, definitely had to get the police involved. And, and uh, he was from Ohio, I guess. And, you know, they kicked him out of New York. But like I said, it was a long time ago. Ryan is now 23, so... That gives you a little bit of, you know, but it is a scare. It messes with your head. I mean, I remember, like I said, sitting there in the window for three days straight watching for a funky car to come through, you know. So it's just not, I wouldn't, in that time, I would not um, be out walking my dog by myself. All right, Nick, take care. Thank you so much for coming in, hon. I appreciate it. And I will definitely, next week, um, if I have your permission, we'll definitely share your story on True Kind Tuesday. And anybody that's new, if you have a share uh, story to share, I mean, I do different days of the week, I do different things. So if you have a paranormal story, um, a true crime or missing 411 story that you want me to research or whatnot, or a UFO uh, conspiracy theory, legends and lore, and cryptids. Um, you know, anything like that. Definitely send me uh, an email to shadows of the moon one at yahoo.com. All the links, well, they're not down below. Well, no, they should be down below in my D live anyway. But <laughs> all right, so our last story of the day, guys, is the Tom and Should case. 
Now, I don't know if I can't remember if I shared this before, but this is one of the biggest stories. This is what got me into, um, like, true crime mysteries. And um, I don't know, just this, something about this case that it shook me. And, uh, you know, just added to my weird obsession with finding weird things, I guess. <laughs> that's true. She could have had, that's true, Heather, that she could have had um, something psychologically wrong with her. Definitely. It's a crazy case. I mean, very, I mean, there are people out there that do things to themselves to get that attention, but I mean, I don't want to say that because I don't know her. You know what I mean? It's just a crazy, messed up case. <laughs> That's for sure. No doubt there. Let's see. Is my YouTube working yet? I don't I don't see anybody talking in chat, so probably not. Again, I apologize, guys, if you're coming over from YouTube. I don't know what the hell. Yeah, it's still sending data. I don't know what's going on with YouTube. I will try to get it fixed by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens, Ron. Oh, did you know? Wait a minute. I watched out the window every day for the same car. Went past my car. They had police pull me. Oh, wow, Ron. That's messed up. That's crazy. That is, I'm sorry you went through that, Ron. That. Do you know who it was or just was it some random person? Hopefully you got it all taken care of. Like I hopefully they're, you know, behind bars or far away from you or that's crazy. Like I said, the last case, the last story I got for today is the Tom and Chud case. And again, I don't remember if I shared this or whatnot, but I went back and watched it over actually on BuzzFeed because um, I like, that's what I do when I'm not researching stuff on my computer. I'm watching documentaries and watching stuff from BuzzFeed <laughs> and getting ideas for the show. But just... This, for some reason, this story, the first time I heard it, and I can't even remember where I heard it. I heard it on a radio station somewhere, and it really freaked me out. They knew exactly the time I was at my friend's and called and asked why I was there. I said, wow, I know who it was. Harassment still go. Oh, Ron, I am so sorry that it's still going on for you. That's bullshit. That is bullshit. Nobody should live their life in fear like that of what's going to happen. Nobody should. Nobody should at all. Crazy. I am so sorry you're going through that, hon. I really am. That's just nuts. So was the unidentified man found dead on the Adelaide beach in 1948? A Cold War spy. 
See, when I first heard about the story, it, there was nothing. Um, they didn't know who he was at all. I mean, that's how, you know, there was no assumptions, no nothing. This is him. So, let me get that back up so I can see chat. We'll never know what Somerton Man thought the day he would have in store for him as he stepped off the train in Adelaide Station one Australian summer morning. One Australian, yeah, I can talk. One Australian summer morning in 1948. All we know is that he was heading for his death. The man's strange demise on the beach at Somerton would spawn Australia's greatest unsolved mystery, a secret code that remains unbroken to this day, and a persistent rumors of Cold War intrigue and spying. The story begins on Monday, the morning of December the 1st, 1948, at a beach near Glenug, Glenig, again, sorry about the enunciation, Um, Seven miles from South Australian city of Adelaide, local jeweler John Lyons had become concerned about a man he had seen the previous evening laying fully clothed on the sand propped up against the seawall. Lyons had initially dismissed the slumbering figure as a drunk sleeping off a a rough session, but the next morning he was still there, cold and pale an extinguished half-smoked cigarette resting on his shirt collar. The man was clearly dead. Lyons alerted police. It is this unfortunate soul was a a drunk. His hangover had proven terminal. But it seemed unlikely, even in the first glance. The man was clearly no vagrant, as he was well-dressed in a suit, pullover and tie, and what looked like a freshly polished shoes. And this is where he was found, right there, with the X marks the spot, just chilling. What initially might have been something relatively straightforward, like illness or suicide, quickly became a whole lot more complex and puzzling by the troubled details of the man's death. Somerton Man, as he became known for reasons about to become clear, was about 45 years old. He was in excellent physical condition with unusually well-defined and muscular calves and smooth, well-mannered, manicured hands. Found on this person was some juicy fruit chewing gum. Who doesn't love a good juicy fruit gum? Um, A couple of combs, a box of Army Club cigarettes with with the more expensive Kensitas cigarettes inside, a used bus ticket from Glenelg, and an unused train ticket to nearby Henley Beach. The trouble for the police was that that was it. Aside from the small assortment of items, the body was entirely and utterly anonymous. No wallet, no passport or ID document. Strangest of all, the labels of his clothing had been deliberately removed. Whoever Somerton Man was, he either wanted to remain anonymous or somebody had stripped his body of any form of ID. If the case wasn't already difficult enough for the Adelaide police, no cause of death could be ascertained either. 
There was no marks on the bodies or signs of a struggle, and the autopsy revealed that he had had not died of a heart attack or other natural causes. There was, however, signs of damage to his organs. The brain, stomach, and liver were congested with blood, leading the pathologist to suspect he died as a result of a hemorrhaging caused by poison. The pathologists were puzzled. It was the only explanation for his death that they could come up with, but even this made no sense. Absolutely no trace of poison was found in this man's body and no sign of convulsing or vomiting on the scene. If this was poisoning, then it was a very sophisticated one, using a rare poison that left no trace. Odd for a small town in Australia in the 1940s. It also looked like, thank you so much, Jim. Hey, how you doing, hon? Hope all is well. Thank you so much for the ice creams. You're such a sweetheart. Thank you. Um, let's see. It also looked like murder rather than suicide. It's the body's peaceful and undisturbed state when discovered, suggested it had been moved to that position after the poison had taken effect. Whatever the case, it appeared to be the work of professionals. The stripping of the identification from the body, the removal of the tags from his clothing, the signs of sophisticated traceless poisoning, it all pointed to the world of espionage. Was the Summerton man a spy? I hear you, Jim. I hear you. No worries, hon. I'm glad that you made it in, though. A few scant leads emerged. A couple of locals suggested he was a man named E.C. Johnson. But when Johnson promptly walked into Adelaide Police Station alive and well, well, that possibility evaporated. All the other inquiries proved fruitless. Even searches as far afield as the U.K. and U.S. returned nothing. Just days after the Sumatern's man's discovery, the case was cold as the body on the slab. No names, no clues, a dead end. Excuse me. On December 10th, the body was embalmed, the first time anyone could remember this happening to an unidentified person. For the next six weeks, Summerton man was little more than a local curiosity. All inquiries all inquiries exhausted. Right, Ron? The umbrella trick. Maybe. Then on January 14, 1949, a breakthrough was made that when staff at Adelaide train station finally made a connection between media reports of the mysterious man found at Somerton and an unclaimed suitcase that had been rusting on their cloakroom since December. Inside the suitcase found clothes similar to those of the Summerton man had been wearing. The dates checked out too, as it had been deposited at the station the day before the man's body had been found. A distinct yarn of orange barber wax thread inside the suitcase clinched it. The same orange thread had been used to repair the pocket of, a summer, of the Summerton man's trousers. And here is the This is what they found, his suitcase with all the stuff in there. It looks like another tie. What the hell is that, a chisel? 
Why would he have a chisel? I don't know. Hold on, I'll, I'll try to blow it up for you guys so you can see. It looks like a chisel. What is this thing? A file? Or is that an old shoehorn? Would that be an old shoehorn? What is that, guys? What else is in there? I never looked at this picture really closely. What is this? A change? Did people carry around little to put change in? Like, did they have their own? I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Hunter, that it might be an old shoe. But it did look like a chisel at first. I was like, why is there a chisel? But then the handle ain't right. But, you know, is that a magnet? I don't know. Spoon? That's a lot of crazy stuff in there. What is that thing? That looks like a... Oh, that's a... um. Isn't that uh, uh, for shaving? The old shaving? Toothbrush? That's crazy. That's crazy. I don't know. My dad had one a long time ago, but I can't remember. I was sitting there. You guys couldn't see me, but I'm sitting there. I'm looking at it, and I'm, like, going like this, like you guys could see me. (laughs) Shading, you know. (laughs) It was his suitcase, all right. The police finally about to solve the mystery? Yeah, shaving brush. Unfortunately, the contents of the suitcase were a little help identifying the Somerton man. If anything, what was inside only deepened the mystery. It was mostly the kind of mundane stuff you'd expect to see in a suitcase. A dressing gown, a pair of trousers, a pair of slippers, Underpants and pajamas, shaving equipment. Oh, shoe polish and an ashtray. I didn't even think about that. See? That's why I love you guys. (laughs) Um, Pencils, envelopes, and stamps. More interesting was a knife and scissors, a square of zinc. Oh, it wasn't a magnet. It was a square of zinc. And stenciling brush. Oh, of kind used by seamen to mark cargo on merchant ships. Oh, if I just read the story all the way through, we'd know. (laughs) Perhaps Somerton Man was a foreign sailor. It certainly seems he's not Australian. Or he was a frequent traveler abroad. Both the barber thread and the man's coat were the kind not sold in Australia. Obviously, like the clothes the man was wearing, almost everything in the suitcase had its label deliberately mutilated there were however a couple of notable exceptions right Heather it adds to the mystery that's right damn it that's the story and we're sticking to it (laughs) there were however a couple of notable exceptions a wash bag bore a label with the name T Keen on it and the name Keen was found on a singlet I don't know what a singlet is What's a singlet? Now I got to look it up because, you know, that's what we do here. Because Missy's stupid and she don't know half this shit. Oh, what? Okay. A singlet is um, basically like what they uh, wear in wrestling. Like not wrestling, WWE wrestling. 
um, but the like high school wrestling. That's what a singlet is. <laughs> it's not what I was expecting, but all right. Um, whilst this was important clue, investigating detectives Lionel Lean and Len Brown were confused. Why had all the other labels been so meticulously, meticulously removed, yet these left intact? They felt the distinct possibility that someone was deliberately trying to mislead them. I'm glad I'm not the only one, Heather. <laughs> but when you go to look it up um, and you see guys' asses in your face, it's like, well, that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> Regardless, a search for T. Keen and Keen and missing persons record in the whole English-speaking world returned nothing. Those records were off-limits to Western investigators with the onset of the Cold War. Again, it looked like police had reached another dead end. After six months with no further leads, the coroner's inquest into the mystery man's death finally commenced on June 7, 1949. Was he Russian? Was he a Russian spy? With little no new evidence to go on, came to much the same conclusion reached back in December. Like, everybody's a spy. <laughs> Pathologist John Burton Cleland, I mean, which makes sense back in the day, but, you know, stated, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucide, and that it was not accidentally administered. But I cannot say whether it was administered by, a deceased, by the deceased himself or some other <laughs> by some other po po person. Ron, don't tell Eddie. No. <laughs> Despite the inconclusive verdict, a major discovery was made at the inquest. Initially missed by the pathologist with a, with a small... Here's where it gets really weird, and this is where I got interested in it. Um, there was a small scrap of paper inside the FOB watch pocket of Somerton's man's trousers. It would change the whole complexion of the case. No, no Eddie today. He's working. He's um one of our friends is out of town and needed Eddie to run his restaurant for him. So he's over there running the restaurant. Cooking. And hopefully bringing me some lunch at three. <laughs> it was torn out from a page of a book a poetry. Here comes the enunciation problems again. That's the only thing that stopped me from doing the story. Um, called Rabiet of Omar Khayyam and, and contained the phrase Tom and should. Yeah, no, Ron. If I did, he probably wouldn't wear it. Um, Tom and should means ended or finished in Persian. The implication that the Somerton man had used the book as an impetus to suicide is obvious. So the Rabia itself is concerned with the themes of seizing the day and leaving behind no regrets. Police went to the media with the new finding and hoped that somebody would be able to identify the book the scrap had been torn from. They were soon contacted by a man who wished to remain, remain anonymous 
who had found a rare 1859 Edward Fitzgerald translation of the Rubiet on the back seat of his unlocked car, which been, had parked had been parked at Glenlig around the time the body was found. I'm sorry, Ron. Next time. You guys, you, you guys got to tell Eddie that. that. When Mr. Chaos comes back, you tell him that Wednesday, tomorrow. No, not Wednesday. He's not here either Wednesday, tomorrow. Um, he's here Thursday. So Thursday, you yell at him for not bringing lunch, okay? I'm not in charge of that. <laughs> I mean, unless you want hot dogs and water, that's what we're down to now. It's, you know, like our Friday, or it's our, like our Thursday. Today's like our Thursday. We get paid tomorrow. So we're down to hot dogs and water and coffee, if you want any of that. <laughs> Nicole, you should get Andy a slinglet. For some reason, I don't think Andy would wear one either, but you never know. Hey, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors and all, you know. Um, police went to the media with the new findings and hoped that somebody would able be able to identify the book the scrap had been torn from. They soon got contacted. Of course, I had, I already read this part. So anyway, this book ended up in his unlocked car, which had been parked at Glenlid around the time the body was found. And this was, this was the scrap of paper. That's all they found. Tom and Chute. So the forensics expert matched the torn scrap to the page from the book, but nobody had any idea why it was ripped out or indeed why it had been sewn into the man's trousers. I mean, it was sewn into his pants. None of that made sense. It is probably the discovery of the book more than anything else that would ensure we're still talking about the Somerton man 70 years later. It would turn to an obscure John Doe case in one of the most baffling and intriguing mysteries of the entire Cold War. And like many great mysteries, this one had a secret code. Right, Heather? I know, it's weird. Aside from the torn, excuse me, torn out scrap, the forensics experts also found, or found very faint letters written in pencil on the book's inside cover. It looked like some kind of code or cipher. And I'll go ahead and put this in chat because it's just weird. <laughs> Not going to lie. So this is the code that they found in that book. Also written in the book was something less cryptic, an unlisted telephone number that belonged to a local nurse named Jessica Thompson. Thompson lived less than a mile from where Somerton's man body was found and was clearly connected to the dead man in some way. At the time of the police inquiry, Thompson requested and was granted anonymity, uh, not anonymity, but you know the word, by the, police, by the police, and was referred to many years only by the name Justin. The detectives who interviewed Thompson noted her evasive manner seeming reluctant to offer up any information about what, if anything, she knew. Most startling was her reaction when a show of a plaster cast of the dead man's face. Thompson was visibly shocked and was described by detectives as present and completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. 
despite this extraordinary reaction, Jessica Thompson claimed not to recognize the Somerton man, but did tell police that she had once owned a copy of the Rabiat of Omar Khayyam. Thompson had worked as a nurse in Sydney during World War II and recalls giving her copy of the book to an army lieutenant she had met there called Alf Boxel. Was this a tale of an old love tracking down his wartime sweetheart in the hope of reconciliation? Hoping they might finally be closing in on a solution to the mystery in the identity of the Somerton man, police attempted to track Boxel down. Unfortunately for them, but fortunately for Boxel, they found him alive and well and living in Sydney. Boxel still had his copy of the riot, 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 whatever, complete with the intact page bearing the phrase Tom and Should and signed with Justin Thompson's pseudoname. Boxel claimed no knowledge of the dead man and said he had not had any contact with Thompson after 1945. Clearly, Boxel didn't, Thompson and Boxel were not entirely honest. Two copies of the book of poetry opened by two men, both inscribed with direct references to the same woman. There had been a connection, and some of the detectives long held suspicions about the case began to become manifest. That could be Ron. The code, the missing labels, and the era mystery surrounding the dead man raised the possibility his death was espionage related and he himself may have been a spy did thompson and boxel know more than they were letting on they were were they both spies themselves unable to tell police what they knew because it was top secret the code the missing labels and the era mystery surrounding the dead man raised the possibility his death was espionage related that there might and there that there might be dark forces at work when he was reinforced hold on that there might be dark force at work here was reinforced by the discovery of another similar death in 1945 where a sydney man named george marshall also died supposedly from poisoning clutching a copy of the rabbiat of omar Khayyam. Was the book some kind of standard issue for spies? Was it used to, for identification or a book cipher? Australia in the post-war period was thick with espionage. The UK and US both suspected the Soviets of operating agents in the country, which housed such highly sensitive installation as the top secret British rocket and nuclear test-based Wamara, 300 miles 300 miles north of Somerton. The spy thesis was clearly credible, and the suspicious silence of those involved only reinforced the idea. But after failing to get anywhere with the Boxel and Thompson's no help, the case eventually went cold. Interest would periodically revive with dozens of people over the years coming forward claiming to know the Somerton man. But on every single occasion, the, le- the leads amounted to nothing. 
Much later in the 70s, Al Foxel would be interviewed on Australian TV while submitting he would have been involved in intelligence during the war. He denied that there was any spying connection to the Somerton case, stating it's quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? But Boxel's attempt to downplay the idea had, had little effort on his enduring popularity, and the case was never, has never been far from the public consciousness in Australia. Rumors that it was an untold and still untellable story of Cold World intrigue persist to this day. Was the nameless, mysterious man found on Somerton Beach really a spy, killed in the course of some clandestine mission? So what do you guys think? Ron, listen, I've never seen somebody's ass so many times, you mooner. <laughs> so what do you guys think? When you think he was a spy and he just got killed? Or do you think he was just a dude that got killed? I mean, I definitely, yeah, it sounds more like he was a spy. See, when, like I said, when I first heard this story, there was no spy talk involved. It was just like, whoa, this dude is, I don't know what the hell, you know? There goes Jim showing his ass. <laughs> That's okay. I don't mind. Maybe a double agent or something. Yeah. I did give you the name of a mooner. I did. I did. I can't lie about that. I'm the one that oh, anybody that subscribes becomes a mooner. I can't help it. <laughs> so how did you guys like those stories? Did you like them okay? What do you think? Were they good stories? Tell Eddie that's what happens when he's not around, right? Right? He comes back and watches them, Jim. I mean, well, he might not on DLive, but because YouTube's screwing up. There's Ron dancing. There he goes. Telling you. <laughs> so who's dancing today? Eddie's not here. So it's got to be Ron, Jim, and Sid. Y'all are dancing there. Oh, you're very welcome, Heather. I'm glad you came in. Speaking of that, like I said, it's it's a short show today. I'm sorry. Um, you know, what are you gonna do? I can't help it. <laughs> it's a crazy day today, especially with everything happening with YouTube. I don't know what's going on with YouTube. I really don't, but then again, really, 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 here we go, do this again. <laughs> um, with everything going on, I don't know what's going on with YouTube. I went to go live and it's just sending the data. It won't, oh, that's Mr. Chaos, Andy and you. Okay. 
Well, I thought, well, since Andy and Mr. Chaos isn't here today, I figured it was, it, we switched it up. But Jim was in there dancing. Yeah, Jim, it, I don't know. It won't, it wasn't picking up what I was laying down. That's what it was. <laughs> no, YouTube just didn't, it wouldn't go live. Oh, I got to because it probably didn't work, but, you know, we know how this goes. <laughs> I know, right? He would have been, you You changed your name of, on YouTube again? That is funny. When you get, He knew it was you, though, man. He was straight up. He's like, is that Jim that comes in? And I'm like, I don't know. You got me, too, in, in a way. Of course, I think I think it was closer to my nap, so I was just telling him an answer because, thank you, Rod, you got me. Felt the blood pressure go up a little. You got me. Um, <laughs> you, uh, I think it was around. Um, um, don't ask me what that was. Uh, I think it was around my. Um, nap time. So it's kind of just, you know, he was like, is that? And I'm like, I don't know. Because <laughs> that's what I do when I'm tired. All right, guys, you know what that, you know what time it is. You know what time it is. If you're anywhere else listening on Facebook, Twitter, not on Mixer anymore, because Mixer's not around. Um, what else am I streaming to? I don't know. I don't know anymore. My trouble. Um, I think my Instagram, I don't know, Twitter, Twitch. If you're anywhere else, head on over to DLive. God, I hate that construction. It scares the hell out of me. Um, head on over to DLive because we're going to be running the credits. I thank you guys for hanging out with me today. Even though Mr. Chaos isn't here, I really do. I appreciate it. You know, I love you guys. I really do. You guys mean the world to me. You really do. And I, I, I love hanging out with you guys. I love interacting with you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow is, we are talking UFOs, guys. We are talking UFOs because, gosh darn it, I am going to, I don't know what am I what I'm going to do, but no, we're talking, we're going to talk about the friendship case that was sent to Ron because last week, apparently it was my fault. We didn't go live. Um, (laughs) Last week we didn't go live. So therefore we were talking about the friendship case in Italy that sent me down a wicked rabbit hole. Um, And then we're going to talk about what else we got coming up. We're going to talk about the case. I know it's out of Canada. Um, hold on one second. Let me pull up my show notes. Nope, we already used that one. Nope. Talk about Dorothy Isette and the Vancouver Lights. 
we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to t- um, talking about the mystery of the UFO repeaters. Hundreds of amazing UFO photo- photographs prove they can't all be lying. So, well, I was hearing something in my ear. But, uh, yeah, the whole, I have a whole theory going on about UFOs and what's going on and how we should be watching the skies, how we should be seeing how many reports come in. Of course, we'll have the MUFON report of how many uh, the past week has happened, because that's what we do every week, or I try to do. I forget. You know, I am me. And... um we're going to, uh, you know, people, thank you so much for the lemon, Sid. I appreciate it. But how people say always watch the, the rich people and what they're doing to see what's going on in the world. My theory is we should be watching how many UFO reports we see to know what's going on, at least in the nuclear war era. Does that make sense? See what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I am pressing the box right now, so make sure you press that treasure chest. 30 seconds, guys. If you clicked off of it, click on the chest, and you should get your lemons. Get your lemons right now. (laughs) But, yeah, so good show tomorrow. I can't wait. Because, I mean, like I said before, I could be talking out my ass and not know what the hell I'm talking about. But it's just one of my theories on what's going on in the world. Yay, we got Lemons. Ron got 79. Lemons. Heather got 45.8. Just Jim with 33.3. Sid with 26.7. And Sexy Wife Weasley with 22.5. Awesome, awesome job, guys. Thank you again so much for coming in and hanging out with me. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Mr. Chaos appreciates it just as much as I do. We will see you tomorrow on Wednesday's show, talking UFO and aliens, guys. All right, guys. Be safe. Take care. Smile with your eyes, not just your mouth. Ron says, Chef, thank you for the lemons. You're such a sweetheart, Heather. Thank you so much. Shadow, I just seen something. A private investigator that contacts with the contracts with the government to file home to do research and files. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I'll check that out. Definitely. I want to check out Nick's story that he sent me. And again, if any of you have any stories that you want to send in, if you want to be anonymous, we can do that too. Just let me know in the email. We'll share your stories, see what the people in chat think. Hope you all have, was it Carl Sagan? No, it wasn't Carl Sagan, was it? I mean, he's dead now, but. Um, sent file out. I believe it. I definitely believe it. But again, if you want a story to share, you know, definitely send it to me and we'll talk chat. And uh, yeah, anyway, have a great day, guys.
be safe, take care, and um, love you guys. Till tomorrow. Bye. Oh, okay, Ron. <laughs>